Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. When the quartet Sons of Serendip appeared on the show America's Got Talent back in 2014, they quickly became an audience favorite. Their unique combination of classical jazz, pop, and R&B fusion set them apart from the other music groups and earned them the praise of most musically talented act on the show from judges Howie Mandel and Howard Stern. Coming up, we'll revisit their 2019 interview with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. And later, we'll hear about the art of wood turning with the Molthrop family. But first... The live performance event, My Name is Not Mom, is a comedic journey through motherhood. The show starts internet sensations Tiffany Jenkins, Meredith Masony, and Dina Blizzard, whose combined 12 million social media followers appreciate their honest and often hilarious take on being moms. The trio brings their stage act to Atlanta this Friday, August 13th, and the comedic moms join us now via Zoom. Tiffany, Meredith, and Dina, welcome to City Lights. Hi. Hey, thanks for having us. Hi, everybody. You're all very funny and engaging women. Did any of you ever imagine that you would end up making a career out of social media? This is Tiffany. Um, I thought I was going to be an actress or a teacher. And it's crazy because now I get to dress up like weird characters and act out these skits and teach people that it's okay to be weird and unique. So in a strange way, I have fulfilled uh, my ultimate dream. Yeah, level achieved, well done. <laughs> Dina, what about you? So I, th- I think I really thought I was gonna be a musician and a mom. Um, so, you know, because of, you know, most of the things I talk about is motherhood. I think that, you know, in some ways it was awesome to be able to to do it, but I never saw this. No, I, I don't know that anybody could have seen this. I When I was younger, was there even internet? Were there even cars? I don't know. It was so long ago. So it's hard <laughs> for me to even imagine that this would be a thing. But, um, but I, th- I think the best part is that, you know, I get to be a mom and talk about being a mom, uh, which was pretty fun. No doubt. And Meredith, what about you? I didn't foresee this at all. And I actually thought that I was going to be a news anchor. That was my goal anyway. Um, I love writing and journalism. And uh, so in a sense as well, um, I get to go live and be with people and 
give my opinion, even though nobody asked for it. So it's, yeah, I think we all kind of found a way to create what we wanted. Yeah, I guess you did. For Dina and Meredith, what were your original outlets for connecting with your community before social media was available to you? Dina, you want to go first? So uh, when I was, I think I had just had my second baby and I was turning 30 and I had said to my husband uh, that I'd always wanted to try. I I thought I was going to die. I was like, I'm going to die soon. I'm 30 now. So I should do everything I've ever wanted. (laughs) And I said to my husband, I've always wanted to try stand up. And so he bought me a comedy class when I was 30. And I vaguely remember the years, but I had a third baby during that time. And so it was really therapeutic. It was around September 11th and my husband was activated and he was gone a lot. And so I would go, you know, I'd be with my kids all week long and then I'd do stand up on the weekends and talk about how annoying it was and how tired I was. And so I think for me, that was my first way of dealing with motherhood um, because it was a way for me to get out and talk to real people because I was by myself a lot. And then, yeah, then the internet happened. So I think that, you know, before this, it was, it was just comedy in general. And then I imagine before that it was why. So. <laughs> and Meredith, what was your first outlet for connecting with people? Well, I mean, I was a teacher before I did what I'm currently doing. So I was always around people and kids. I mean, I had other adults to talk to, but then I started working from home, uh, teaching homeschool uh, and medically compromised students. And that's when I started to get really lonely uh, and didn't have anybody to talk to because I was working from home. So there was no other connection with an adult outside of my husband. And then I, you know, I had the three kids. And so that's when I actually started writing because I was lonely. So I started a blog first to just kind of complain and commiserate about life. And Tiffany, your story is a a little more complicated because you do have addiction in your past. So when you were first approaching motherhood, trying to get your footing in it all, what was your first outlet for connecting with people? Were you already on social media? I was already on social media and I did. I started popping babies out when I lived at a halfway house and it was a very wild time. Um, It was very overwhelming because I was still trying to figure out how to live life without the use of drugs and alcohol. And so I felt like I was failing. And when I would look towards the internet, it reiterated that I was failing because everyone looked so perfect. And I started feeling real bad about myself. And then I decided there was like a need for something real and something authentic to be on the internet. So I started writing about my addiction and my postpartum depression and mental health. And I was amazed at the amount of people that uh, were in my inbox thanking me for being so real. And that was when I was like, okay, there's this group of people out there who need some place on the internet to go and just be who they are. And And that's kind of where Juggling the Jenkins was formed. And I wasn't expecting any of it. And I'm just super grateful for all of it. That's just lovely. Guys, who came up with the idea for titling the show, My Name is Not Mom? Both of them. Both Meredith and Dina, in a weird way, came up with it. How so? Uh, This is Meredith. The, The idea of this show was a selfish one for me because I had been friends with Tiffany for many years and I had been friends with Dina as well, but sort of separately, right? Because we all live in in different places and we had met through different ways. And during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time 
speaking with Tiffany, a lot of time speaking with Dina, and we all spent a lot of time with our communities. And I wanted to find a way to kind of bring us together because I realized we all had kids in a different age and stage and phase. So Tiffany's got the littles and I've got the middles and Dina's got the grown and flown. So Dina, I'll throw it to Dina from this point. So yeah, we we kind of went through a bunch of different names and some were just plain mean, Kim. We were like, we hate kids. We're out of here. So we're just like, that doesn't feel right. Uh, some of them were maybe too nice. And so we just kept throwing ideas around. And I think it was part pandemic. I think that you know, I don't know that there's a mom on the planet that is, you know, leaving the pandemic thinking, wow, I wish somebody would call me mom more. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, just uh, kind of where we were. And so I, I said, hey, what do you think about uh, my name is not mom? And Mare said, that's so crazy. I, that was going to be the name of my next book. And it was just kind of kismet after that. We were like, yeah, this feels right. And then everything just kind of fell into place after that. I think, you know, it was something all of us wanted was to be able to go out and see our communities and the people that we've gone through the years with, but especially the last year and a half. And so once we kind of decided on the name, all the pieces started to come together and we just did our, what was it, our fifth show last night. And um, I think the thing that makes this show really different is that it is three different brands, three different personalities, but all under this umbrella of just being real about motherhood. I think that that's the one thing that brings us together in a, in a really great way. It's been a secret to all of our success. And so it's, it's nice. It's been nice to, to meet, you know, Tiffany's audience or Tiffany to meet my audience or Mare's audience and to be able to find that commonality across the three of us and, and just being funny. And I'm sure aside from meeting each other's audiences, meeting your own in person has to be something that's kind of new for you, or at least, you know, within the context of this many people at once. Yeah, I uh, think that that's been kind of the amazing part. Uh, The three of us being able to meet our audiences, my son actually works on the show as well and our crew. And so he's out there taking pictures and people will say, Dean, how are things going? Like they know his life. They'll be like, when are you going to shave off your mustache? Like this mustache is the most popular thing on our feed. So it's, <laughs> it is funny that, you know, you can meet people that you've never met and yet they come up to you and say, you know, how is Jacqueline doing with college? Did she figure out what degree she wants to be? And they know these intimate details about your life, but you've never met them. And they know you in a way that, usually you would know people's faces if they knew that much about you. So there's something really beautiful about it. And I I know that Tiffany has so many great stories about, you know, other people struggling with addiction and, and survivors of addiction, but they're, they're really beautiful stories and being able to put a face to a name from the internet's been really lovely. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and I'm speaking with the stars of My Name is Not Mom, Tiffany Jenkins, Dina Blizzard, and Meredith Masony. Tiffany, can you share a bit about what it's like to meet people from your online community or people that have read your book, High Achiever? Um, yes, it's also new and it's been tough because we haven't been able to do meet and greets yet because of the climate of the world, if you will. But there have been people who have snuck notes under the door and been like, I have your book. Can you sign it? 
and I've got people are waving my book in the crowd and it makes me feel so good. It's so crazy to me that people are so supportive and so wonderful and so dedicated to what we're doing. It means so much that people are showing up and they're buying tickets and they're bringing their friends. Um, it really is amazing. Mm. Well, I think it's probably a testament to how much they feel that you've given to them. And it's nice when that can come turn around and you can see people's faces. I'm not the kind of person who gets up in front of a crowd of people and talks. I get super nervous about basically everything in life. Um, but being able to be face to face with everybody and thank them in person is the, like one of the main reasons that I'm doing this. Otherwise, it would never happen. I have terrible stage fright, but I'm just so grateful to them that, that you know, this is the least I could do. That's a great lesson for people. Just, you know, a way of getting over your fears is just sometimes diving right in. I would love to speak a little more about anxiety for a second with Dina. I know that that's something that your child Brooke has struggled with in the past. Can you talk a little to some of the advice that you've given Brooke over the years? Yeah. You know, I say we are an anxiety family. It runs deep in our family and, you know, it's definitely been a journey. I, I think most of the advice I've given has been at my most raw moments for a long time. It was kind of a, a very personal journey and it was very weird. Uh, we started to recognize things with Brooke pretty early between the anxiety and learning issues and ADD. And we just weren't really sure what was going on. It was probably second grade. And so I was doing my best to just try to manage it. But through the years, it just imploded by the time she was in eighth grade. And ugh, it's hard to talk about. I hear you. How's she doing now? She's great. And I think that Kim, I didn't think we were talking about this today. Um, we I don't have to. No, no, if you I don't just, want to. No, but if it's a story you want to share. I want to hear. Yeah, no, it ends really well. She's a senior. She's going to be a senior this year. So when she was younger, it didn't seem like it was getting better. I didn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. What was your turning point? Um, the, there's a video where I had a complete breakdown at a CBS after an IEP meeting. And um, I did that video and it was probably the first time that after living in the funny parts of social media, it was the one where I was just hysterical. And it was probably like, people will send us notes. I'm sure Meredith and Tiffany will agree. You know, you do a funny video, people will send you notes. Be like, oh, this was so funny. I really needed to hear this and yada, yada. And they're usually small notes and they're lovely to get. But that video, I literally got pages from people all sharing their stories. Mm. And I think it was for me, the moment where you start to realize that there are so many people on this journey at different parts. And so from that point on, I just felt very empowered. And I was like, okay, yes. then I'm going to figure this out. And I'm going to talk about it at every step of the way. And so we fought for her and got her into a great school. She goes to high school part-time, but then she was going to another school that was uh, this place called Fusion. It's a one-on-one -on -one school and it taught her how she needed to learn. And uh, we started to get the right medicines for her anxiety. And by freshman year, she was a completely different kid. I, I think that for a long time, we were treating her ADD. And it took a long time for me to realize that we needed to treat the anxiety. We needed to be able to get her to stay in the room so she could learn. 
And it is now three years later. And I went from having a kid who couldn't put her thoughts on paper, not even five sentences, to now we're filling out college applications and she's going to be a senior. Now she's, you know, it's uh, apparently still with me, Kim. I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll be, it'll be with me forever just to think about where we were and where we are now. I totally get it. And I'm so happy for you and for Brooke and for everyone that's gotten to hear you on this journey and been able to gather strength from it. You know, all three of you approach so much of motherhood with comedy. But as you said, Dina, the most interaction and engagement you ever got was when you were being your most real self. And thank you for sharing. Thanks. Of course, of course. Tiffany, you were speaking about getting on stage being a, a very unnatural feeling for you and a difficult thing to overcome. Do you have any suggestions for people of how to deal with putting yourself in situations that you don't feel like you might be a perfect fit for? I feel like the coolest stuff happens outside of your comfort zone. It's just making that step and how do you do it? And I have been trying to convince myself that those feelings of nerves, instead of saying it's like fear, I just tell myself it's excitement because essentially it's the same reaction in your body when you're scared of something and when you're excited. So I've been trying to trick my brain into just thinking I'm super excited. I love that. (laughs) It helps. And I think that having a group of people around me to talk me off the ledge has been crucial. I'm not joking. There are days when I'm like, okay, I'm going to set this one out, guys. And Meredith is like, Tiffany, you can't. Uh, Your name is on the billboard. So that's not an option. Just reminding me of the purpose of why we're doing this. It's bigger than me. And it's bigger than my fear. And my fear has held me back from so much and steered me down some really dark paths in the past. And so um, I'm using the fear to propel me for a greater purpose, which is getting out there in front of people and making them laugh and realize they're not alone. That's awesome. That's just awesome. So let's talk a little bit about this stage that you guys are all getting on. What can someone expect from the show? Meredith? Yeah, um, we each have our own set. We're together on the stage at various times throughout the show. Like we have video elements. We have every, we have, we have all of that and more. Yeah. This is Dina. As Meredith kind of touched on earlier, we are all at very different stages of motherhood. So I think that that's kind of another awesome part of what brings us together so well is, you know, we're getting Tiffany's perspective of, you know, raising kids at those younger years and Meredith kind of struggling with all things puberty and and middle school and elementary and high school. Uh, And I'm at the other end of the spectrum in, in high school and college. So I think that, you know, anyone coming, no matter where you are on that motherhood journey, you know, this will resonate with you, whether it was a few years ago or it's coming up. We have, you know, women coming with their mothers or their daughters, um, groups of friends. We ha- always have a handful of fellas that come to the show who have mm-hmm. a lot more fun than they expected. I think that you can expect, you know, the same fun that you can see on the internet. Um, and we always have a talk back at the end and have a really great time with our audiences. So you're going to be able to have that experience with people one-on-one uh, live is probably the most unique part of the show. 
Have you had anyone that has been an audience member that you've heard from that doesn't have kids that found it surprisingly relatable? Uh, we had a guy at the show the other night. It was his birthday and he had no idea why he was there. Um, so um, <laughs> his wife and daughter were like, it's your birthday. We're going to take you to a show where you don't know any of the people on it. And his name was Al and he got on stage and he was part of our panel. And that was so fun and weird. Um, but no, I, I don't know. Have you guys met anybody? One, this is Tiffany. One of my family members who doesn't have children came and I, I ran out to the bathroom and she was crying tears of laughter. And she's like, this is the funniest thing I've seen, but she's my family member. So she's probably biased. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But she doesn't have kids. Tiffany Jenkins, Dina Blizzard, and Meredith Masony. The three social media stars have put together a live touring show called My Name is Not Mom, and they'll be in Atlanta at Center Stage Theater this Friday, August 13th. You can learn more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the eclectical music quartet, Serendip. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. So three teachers and an attorney walk onto a stage in front of the entire country. Nope, not a setup for a joke, but truly how the sons of Serendip launched their career. The quartet appeared on the show America's Got Talent in 2014 and quickly became an audience favorite. Sons of Serendip joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes when they were in town last, and here, Reitzes starts their conversation by asking each of the band members to introduce themselves. I'm Kendall Ramsour, a cellist and singer. Cordero Rodriguez, the keyboard. Micah Christian, the lead vocalist. And Mason Morton, harpist. Not only that, but... Native Atlanta. That's right. Native Atlanta, Atlanta Public School, graduate, all that good stuff. (laughs) Atlanta, uh, what else? Atlanta Symphony Orchestra Talent Development Program. Outstanding. Hank Aaron Chasing the Dream Foundation Program. I have to thank all these fine folks. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, the harp really stands out in your ensemble, both literally and figuratively. Um, Mason, I understand that you agreed to take harp lessons before you even knew what the <laughs> instrument was. Were you picturing the cartoons with, you know, angels playing? You know, you, you, you've been doing your research. You know about me than, more about me than I thought. Uh, how did I, you know, Rosalind Lewis of the Urban Youth Harp Ensemble of Atlanta. Ah, yes. You know, she gave me the opportunity. She said, I want a boy and a girl to learn how to play the harp for free. And I simply raised my hand and that was that. 
I didn't know what a harp was. Didn't know, I didn't even have the cartoons. I just knew what free meant. <laughs> <laughs> and I ran with that. I wanted to do music. We didn't have, you know, extra dollars lying around. And Rosalind Lewis gave me that great opportunity. I took it. That's wonderful. And the Urban Youth Ensemble. Harp Ensemble. Um, harp Ensemble thrives to this day. It does. Um, Elizabeth Remy Johnson, Angelica Harrison, yes. they've been on the show. Well, she know it all. Elizabeth Remy was my first harp teacher. There we go. Yeah. Okay, guys, I am not going to discriminate just because you're not from Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> want to hear from you. But first, let's, let's hear a little bit from that America's Got Talent quarterfinal round. So this is how America fell in love with you all. Um, one of the things I especially love about that, the love affair America's Got Talent uh, sparked with you, is that you are genre bashing or genre defying. Hearing the harp, hearing the cello, keyboards, lovely singing, it brings back Duke Ellington's famous mm. saying, there are only two kinds of music, mm. good <laughs> and the other kind. <laughs> but we live in an age of, of such specific categories, categories within categories. How did you decide to form this group and in this way? Well. So this is Micah speaking. Um, so we, it, it really wasn't a thing that we thought out too much. Um, they were all roommates. Um, Cordero and Kendall had grown up together, and, uh, and so they became roommates. Mason was um, Kendall's, or Kendall was Mason's first roommate. And, um, and so when they were all together, Cordero and I met, and then I um, met all the guys, and I'm like, guys, like there's something here that's different. And, uh, and so we, we joked about, you know, doing a performance together at some point in the future, but we never thought that, you know, we'd really do it. <laughs> and roommates, yeah. this was in Boston? This was in Bo yes, in so, Boston. Cambridge, so you were Cambridge, in school? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. you lived in okay. Cambridge. To be yeah, no, <laughs> right, Harvard. right. Harvard. Not University of Georgia, but, you know, it was Harvard up there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You all were at Harvard? No. Well, no, no. We, 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 we live near it. We live near it. 
No. So we were all in graduate school at Boston University, um, studying various things. Outstanding and, yeah, music so. program. Oh, but you weren't all majoring in music? No. No, Kendall and I. Yeah, Mason and I were the, the two doing our masters in, in music performance. and I was uh, doing law. And I was studying theology. Okay, that's <laughs> where the attorney mark. Okay, that's the leap. I, I thought it was undergraduate what you meant. Now this is making even more sense. And uh, yes, living in Cambridge. How did you decide on this name? What does Sons of Serendip mean? So the name comes from a 12th century Persian tale called The Three Princes of Serendip. And we wanted a name that was going to resonate with how we came together. And we, you know, um, looked up the history of serendipity, and that, and that's what we found. And so, um, uh, in this journey, in this story, this this tale, um, these three princes go on a, a, a journey, and they uh, make discoveries by accident that benefit their lives. And we felt like that's kind of how we came together um, as a group. And so we were like, well, let's just play with that name. And we came up with Sons of Serendip. Even though they're four of you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Exactly. That was serendipitous. I, I, I like the band name. Thank you. Um, Thank you. You have diverse backgrounds. Some of you come from classical and some from contemporary. What do you get out of mixing those worlds? Mm-hmm. I say a lot. Go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. All right. Uh, this is me, Mason speaking. Um, after doing like orchestra for years and like um, shows in the pit, I don't. It's like forty shows you would do sometimes. That was great to have that kind of discipline and structure. You know, you must have every note in place. But I like the flexibility of SOS. It's kind of fun to create, to be the composer to. To say, oh, this is what I think. This is what I feel. Oh, well, I can't wait to play. Um, (laughs) One of the clips we have of your music. Let's start with Carry On My Wayward Son. Once I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond the illusion I was soaring ever higher But I flew too high Though my eyes could see I still was a blind man Though my mind could think I still was a madman I hear the voices when I'm dreaming I can hear them say When you are done Lay your weary head to rest Don't you cry no more Okay, this is all perfectly lovely. Ooh, I'm talking over the cello. It's so beautiful. I didn't interrupt. But listeners, if you have not heard Sons of Serendip perform this song, I want to cut to a portion near the end where they do something quite extraordinary.
Okay. Beethoven. <laughs> Not just Beethoven, but probably the most recognizable classical piece in the universe. <laughs> You're quoting the fifth. You flow into it. And then it just all feels organic. There you are back. (laughs) Was this arranged? Did you do this ahead of time? Or was this like jazz riffing? Mm. Yeah, so sometimes we kind of jazz riff things together. This one was a little bit more uh, calculated. We actually anticipated trying to do, like proposing this one to do on America's Got Talent a while back. Um, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't remember what happened. We didn't end up doing it. But um, but we thought later on when we put together an album, we could try it out. And so typically the process is um, we, we have a few processes, but usually it's like I'll lay out the chords and the, the overall idea. And each person will contribute, put pieces and parts to it. So you have charts then oh, you yeah. play from? Yeah. Uh, and no, well, not, no. not oh. formalized charts. Oh. So well, contradict on the air. Excuse me. Well, well, so I mean, so we will write some things uh, down, but they they're not like any kind of formal notation. It's just like on, you know, just paper with scribbled notes and stuff. Yeah. So we're working on that. My goodness, (laughs) that makes it all the more impressive. I love your repertoire. I'm curious about how you choose it. Before we talk about that, can we hear? A bit of Stevie Wonder here. <laughs> like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. time I went and said goodbye Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry Oh baby, here I am Sign, sealed, delivered I'm yours Here I am, baby Got my future in your hands, baby Here I am, baby Got my future Wonder heard this. Yeah. I don't know. He needs to. <laughs> I think so. Not only that, I think the Obamas need to hear this mm. because this is their personal song. Oh. Yes. I did not know that. Yeah, Dan, I think it was the first dance at one of the inaugural balls. Oh, wow. so, beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is beyond fantastic. Oh, thank you. And um, is it? One of your signatures, you know, I mean, signed. Is this is this something you play often? It's definitely one that. This is Kendall speaking. This it's definitely one that 
when we perform in in our shows, uh, it gets the crowd really moving. There's at the end of it, we do like this crowd participation where we get everyone singing and clapping, just having a great time together. And it's one of the ones that we perform towards the end of the show, uh, just to leave everyone at a on a high note. Yeah, but and yeah. yet, you frame it within some very serious sounding chordal context, very symphonic, um, mm. more than quartet. Whose idea was that? Cordero. Okay, how did how did that come to you? Um, be honest, I'm not sure if I remember completely, but I know that as a general, generally, um, it's just a lot of um, like chord substitutions. Um, like just stick to, so know what the real the melody is, the moving line is, and then just kind of experiment with each of those notes of the moving melody with a different chord, and see how you can make something that still makes some kind of, uh, you know, makes melodic sense, but also harmonic sense. Well, it makes a perfect melodic sense, but it it takes the harmony to a very different level mm-hmm. and um, it adds some weight. I mean, it, it's such a happy song, <laughs> but with those chords, mm-hmm. it, it's more, okay, things have not been perfect before, but now, <laughs> now wow. they are signed, sealed, and <laughs> delivered. Wow. How do you choose your repertoire? Hmm. Um, so oftentimes we're looking for um, music that has good lyrics. Uh, well, when it comes to yeah, the, the, the songs that we arrange, um, it's good lyrics and uh, some music that leaves room for creativity. Uh, so, um, so yeah, the, the, like we, you know, we'll bring songs and you know ideas and and we'll listen to the lyrics and see it's like is this something that we could really you know feel. Um, and and then go through the, the music and you know Cordero will you know often say uh, yeah I think I can play with this or no I don't think this is gonna work and then you know we'll, we'll just go from there. You're very collaborative. Um, we only have three minutes, oh. actually less, but we gotta go out with Sam Cook. Oh, All right. Yes, <laughs> Profound. Thank you. Truly. Mason, Micah, Cordero, Kendall. This has been a joy. Thank you for us, too. And I wish you so much success. Your audiences are very fortunate. And do me a favor and send that to Stevie Wonder, please. (laughs) Okay, all right. (laughs) 
musical quartet Sons of Serendip speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. The band is currently offering a masterclass, and you can learn more at sonsofserendip.com. Up next, the art of wood turning. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The art of wood turning in the Molthrop family has been passed down from generation to generation since the 1970s. Architect and professor Ed Molthrop became known as the father of wood turning and was famous for his large scale bowls and spherical wooden sculptures. Ed died in 2003, but the family legacy continues with his son Philip and his grandson Mad, both of whom are master woodworkers. A few years ago, the Molthropes joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes to discuss the art of wood turning, and Philip started their conversation by explaining the type of tools that his father used. If you wanted to do wood turning, you bought a lathe from Sears. That was about the only supplier, and all the tools are these small tools. And he started out that way, but then he started modifying tools to make them a little bit bigger, and then try to do bigger pieces. Then he built a bigger lathe, and he built bigger tools so it just got bigger and then as you may know oh, 10 15 years later he's doing these really large pieces uh, yeah that was very interesting to watch that and matt how did observing your grandfather influence your self-expression uh, he was a tremendous impact um obviously uh with how things have turned out for me i was uh, started out just sweeping in a studio and uh, progressively learned more and more of some of the skills. He actually taught all five of the grandchildren within the family, you know, different aspects to the fundamental of wood turning. You know, part of it was timing and luck that I'd gotten into this. I was of the right age and I had the right, I guess, interest level to keep pursuing, wanting to learn more and more. I was also very young. I was a teenager, so it didn't, it wasn't, uh, it would have been intimidating looking back now, trying to, you know, ask him questions I could have, because he was a tremendous force and very, very intelligent and creative. Um, it was a very special time looking back. Um, I read that you created your first bowl when you were seven? It's somewhere yeah that sounds about <laughs> yeah that sounds about right i was it probably wasn't very good oh sounds <laughs> prodigious so ed studied architecture and fine art at princeton became a successful architect and eventually georgia tech professor do you think his architecture influenced his art uh i do How's i mean, just uh, the styles he turned, and uh, you could tell there was, he, he liked uh, Greek sculpture forms and vases and things like that, and so he copied a lot of the, kind of the curvatures and lines in that. Um, I think, uh, I don't know, a lot of people may not know, but he was a really good painter. He water, was a watercolor painter, and that was what he did probably from the 30s up through the 50s and when he got started in the turning after about a year or two or three he just 
quit that. He liked the turning so much, he just totally concentrated on that. A lot of people don't know that because you don't ever think of paintings that he's done. But he did those for years. But hmm. uh, he studied painting and uh, but uh, also with the architecture. He, he could make things and design them, and it probably helped making the tools and the equipment he used because he, he could draw it out and then make it himself. So. Now, are those tools, many of those tools he invented, he had to. Yes. Are those widely used among the wood-turning community now? Um, no, I wouldn't say widely used. It's something that he kind of custom-made for himself because he couldn't find anybody else who had them. But there's been this big boom in wood-turning, and there's manufacturers making all kinds of tools and machines, and but they go to different types now. There's a tremendous um, uh, volume of tools in existence. We still only use two primary tools for all the pieces. So it's the approach has stayed quite simple. How would you describe those? Essentially, we have one tool that's um, for cutting the outside and then one tool for cutting the inside. That sounds very simple and does not in any way reveal the complexity of the beautiful designs that result from that. I guess that's where the artist comes in. What is it about wood that makes it your chosen material? Well, it was from a living tree at one time, and it has this has a feel to it that something about wood that just feels alive and the trees have all have different colors and patterns and they're not all the same so if you cut one maple tree and then you cut another one they're not going to look the same if one of them is six months older than the other they're going to look different so it just varies and it's kind of a sort of a surprise when you first cut into the log to see what the patterns are inside of it so that's kind of an incentive to to do this Wood innately, to me, is a, a beautiful material. It is natural. Wood is cellulose, and it is living, uh, even beyond the tree. I always explain to people, you think of f- floors and doors, that they swell in the summer with humidity in the south or contract in the winter. What we're doing is no different. We'll work with you know, the entire trunk of a tree or, or part of it, but we have to respect the boundaries of nature because it's very evident, and in, at least in the work we do, uh, if we're not mindful of that, nature wins and a piece can fail. Well, would you talk about that respect for nature and where your work fits in with in a conservation movement? The, the approach that we have as a family in woodturning, it's a revelation process where we're uncovering the beauty and pattern within a tree. We're taking away, not adding. We only have one shot to best create each piece. And there is a good, better, best approach. And it can be quite challenging. You have to read the material from the very beginning because you obviously can't go back. And we can turn a piece on an axis, on axis, meaning if a tree grows vertically, we create the piece vertically. But we can orient the piece of the log sideways and create it at 90 degrees, 180 degrees, and you get a whole different effect. And that's part of you're manipulating the axis to best reveal the piece. And that's 
part of the artistry is dissecting the piece from within before you even start. And giving the tree another life of sorts. And that, yes. That, and that's yeah. part of the fun part of it. You are repurposing something. You create a beautiful sculpture, essentially, but it also has a second meaning to uh, where it came from, especially even when you have commissions for families and they'll send us a tree that had significance, um, a sentimental attachment. And uh-huh. the challenge is sometimes the, the tree to us artistically may not be that exciting, but we have to create the best piece um, that was, resides within. A lot of people that I've met, I mean, they know what a tree looks like, but they never really stop to look at what one looks like. You know, they'll look at a bowl and say, oh, this is really pretty, that pattern's nice. And they say, well, you know, what kind of wood is it? I tell them, they'll say, oh, well, last month I had one of those cut down in my yard, you know. I said, did you ever look at it after they cut it? Well, no, I just told them to haul it off. I said, oh, oh. no. That's where you you look and you see these patterns. And, but, so we started receiving these pieces and started looking at them and cutting them. I think uh, one of them was a Japanese maple tree that was pretty large. It was probably two feet in diameter, but in the very base of it where they sent it, worms had come up and it's just like Swiss cheese. It was so full oh. and I thought, oh, that's just going to be too rotten to use. But then if we poking around I realized it was full of holes, but all the wood actually was very hard. So we made several balls out of that with these little holes off. That's kind of fun. Oh, you maintained mm-hmm. the worm yes. holes. We did. They were incorporated that's, into the pieces. That's kind of a fun thing. You said, can I really make one? So it's a challenge. I've got to be able to do this. So oh. you make yourself do it. Unlike paint and pigment, wood is a medium that remains intact in a way, still recognizable from the time it was a living thing, as you explained. Do you see the wood and decide what to make from the wood, or do you have an idea in your mind of a vessel or a piece you want to create and then look around for the wood that best suits it? Well, for me, it depends. Somebody may say, I want a bowl, but it's got to be this big. So then I'm going to look around for something that will meet what they're asking mm-hmm. for. But a lot of the times we get, in fact, we get just about all of our wood comes from tree cutters. So we don't go out and cut trees down with a chainsaw or anything. And so they, we kind of know several of them. We tell them what we're looking for. And if they're on a job, they'll bring it to us. And so we get these logs. They're maybe two feet long or so. And as you look at it, you look at that pattern, you say, well, this, we could do it this way, but if we turn it this way, it might reveal even more. So you plan it out before you start. So when you make your cuts, you're actually, that's part of the process of making it. Ah, Jimmy Carter is quite a fan of your work. How did he find your family? I think he... He knew of Ed that he was a woodworker, and then Jimmy Carter is a woodworker, and he builds furniture and things like that. And he got very interested in it. And one day, parents were at home, and he got a call and said, This is the officer Jimmy Carter. He would like to come visit. Is that, would that be all right? And they're like, Of course. And I say, well, Yes. <laughs> How do you turn down a president? <laughs> so they said, Well, this will be in about 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So, okay, well, you know, about in 20 minutes, Two cars with, <laughs> I guess they're Secret Service people come up and they'll go around the house and check everything out first. And then he comes and they had really a great visit and he showed him how he did the wood turning. And uh, after that, they kind of, you know, every once in a while there would be some sort of 
communication back and forth. And I remember when uh, Ed passed away, he wrote a thing in the paper for Ed, so it was really nice because I know he's knows so many people. You know, his time is so limited, but very nice. Master woodworkers Philip and Matt Molthrope, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. You can learn more about the Molthrope's work on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll explore the rise of self-taught artists with the High Museum's Katie Gentleson. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights, and there you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzis. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and I encourage you to follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.